Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I am joined by my awesome co-host, Amy Hollenkamp. Oh. Hey, everybody. I'm running out of things to do. I can either do the drum roll, the yeah. crowd cheering, uh, and like that's my repertoire right now. So we're well, just going to roll with that. And I'm also running out of like things to like howdy or like, hey, guys, <laughs> like what's my retort? I need to work on some of my retorts. No pressure. I'm just enough of an awkward turtle that I just, I appreciate all of it. So um, I won't ask you how you are. I won't put that pressure on you in this moment, but I will introduce our topic for the day. This is another zoom in on SIBO root causes, because I think really you need to understand your root cause if you want to treat the damn SIBO in the first place and prevent it from coming back. And today we're going to talk about one of my absolute favorites, post-infectious IBS, and we're going to zoom in on the anti-CDTB antibodies, the anti-vincolin bodies. Should you get tested for it? What's the relevance? And like what you could do to make sure that you're healing your root cause as much as humanly possible. So I'll kick it off to you first and ask, have you seen this come up a lot in your clinical practice? And have you used like the testing for it at all, the anti-CDTB and the anti-vincolin antibodies? And what has your experience been around this so far, Amy? And then I'll give you my two cents as well. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I've definitely um, seen post-infectious, SIBO post-infectious IBS uh, coming up um, right and left. Like, I definitely think there's a, a high correlation to things like food poisonings and um, symptoms coming like relatively quickly after a food poisoning. Sometimes it's immediate and just like nothing has been the same since that day. And sometimes things just seem to creep up a couple months, two, three, six months after a food poisoning event. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely think it's it's a huge root cause for people. It's definitely something I see a lot. Um, I think I've definitely seen some people getting the testing done. Um, So I personally have not delved super deep into the testing. I've had people, I've reviewed reviewed results of the testing. Um, For me, it's always been like, and I think talking to you, I can hear like more of the the value of the test so like talking to you Mm. has been really helpful to to hear your take on it since you've run a lot more of the tests i haven't run Mm. the test i've just seen it of of the relevance of it i think for me again like i sort of assume most of the time which i don't know is the the best option hearing about some of the results you're seeing but i assume that they're is probably a, an autoimmune component if they've had food mm-hmm. poisoning and we can clearly link it to their um, symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it sounds like talking to you that there is like, you can sort of gauge severity level based on the the antibodies and it can kind of help with discussing options in terms of like, should you be on long-term prokinetics, which I think mm-hmm. again is like something that can be helpful with having the testing done but yeah i I, again like i'm interested to to dive in deeper with with on this topic with you just for the um just for the ibs smart test info yeah um i also think um there's certain scenarios where i've seen where like sometimes the post and i know we've talked about it in the past where you were saying there's kind of like you know this Auto, autoimmune type SIBO situation, but there could be like just a post-infectious, um, mm-hmm. like almost dysbiosis. Because if you have an infection, it's yeah. kind of causing inflammation, causing you to release tons of um, 
uh, microbes. And so like the system just gets really thrown out of whack from yeah. some of these, uh, some of these infections. So it might not necessarily be like an autoimmune situation. It could just be that you have a, a lot of dysbiosis following a, an infection. But yeah, yeah, I think for me again, like I definitely some va- see some vagal issues with people that have yeah. had, um, uh, post-infectious IBS or more SIBO autoimmune type presentation. So mm-hmm. I usually, again, like definitely see some vagus nerve things popping up when they've had some of these issues and some nervous mm-hmm. system stuff. But yeah, no, I'm interested to dive into this topic because I know you've done delved more into the testing than I have from the IBS smart standpoint. Yeah. And it's been, it's been a game changer for my practice and my understanding of this. And I will say to preface the entire conversation, since we are talking about testing for antibodies and we are testing for autoimmunity, the anti-vinculin antibodies, A, it's important to know that there's a lot of things that we don't understand about autoimmunity. So autoimmunity was like my first love when I got into functional medicine and I figured out my mom's autoimmune squirreliness and my own. And one of my biggest pet peeves with autoimmunity in general is that there's no single test for autoimmunity broadly. Like you can't run C-reactive protein, have it come back positive and go, okay, we know 100% that you have autoimmunity. Now we just need to find it. The same, the same issue exists for cancer. There's no single test where you can say, yay or nay, you do or you don't have cancer. Now you move on to phase two, which is finding out where it is. So we don't have that really clear diagnostic process. Instead, diagnosing autoimmunity becomes this really exhausting game of almost like whack-a-mole where you're like, all right, let's test for thyroid antibodies. Nope, let's test for rheumatoid arthritis. Let's test for type 1 diabetes. Let's test for, and obviously there's more more guidance because like you wouldn't test for completely different tissue targets necessarily. But like you have to look at the picture and the patient and say, what autoimmunity makes the most sense for you? So if they have joint pain, I would run the test for CCP antibodies for rheumatoid arthritis. If they have, you know, high TSH, I would look for Hashimoto's. But the problem with autoimmunity is that you could have autoantibodies against a tissue that human beings and science are not yet aware of or we have no commercial test available for. So an example is we know that anti-progesterone antibodies are a thing. Some women have an autoimmune attack against their own progesterone. But I looked for it high and low about a year ago for a patient, and we were both convinced that she had anti-progesterone autoimmunity, and there's no commercial test. You can do it in research studies, and they have looked at it in research studies, but there's no commercial test. So acknowledging that, you know, these tests are looking at antibodies against uh, either a bacterial toxin or self-tissue. There's a possibility that there's a margin for error because maybe maybe it's not the vinculin protein that everybody has autoimmunity against. Maybe there's a similar structure or another protein we haven't identified and another autoantibody against something we haven't identified. So there's always gonna be that margin of error with any sort of autoantibody testing, in my opinion. We're like, all right, we think we know how to identify thyroid antibodies, but there's like a gazillion different proteins in the thyroid, and theoretically you could have autoimmunity to any of them. So take that with a grain of salt. But what I will say is what is typically called post-infectious IBS and what I really call post-infectious IBS, I think are a little bit different 
if you live if you listen to like Dr. Pimentel stuff and if you read some of the research on it, they lump two things under that umbrella. And I think mm-hmm. that we could parse it out. There's what I would consider truly post-infectious IBS, where somebody gets food poisoning, they have the anti-CDTB, cytolethal distending toxin antibodies, which is an antibody against bacterial toxins. They have that antibody, the immune system freaks out, launches an attack, they clear the infection, but some of that, some of that antibody, some of that inflammation persists, some of that dysbiosis persists, and those are the cases where like the symptoms start pretty much immediately after the food poisoning and then they can linger. But in about 40, I think, or 45% of cases, it completely self self-resolves in two years. Yeah. No intervention, no nothing. It just goes away in two years. That's where you've got the anti-CDTB only, typically. When it stuff gets weird is when your immune system says, all right, there's a bacteria, and I know it's bad. Say it's like E. coli or Campylobacter. Your immune system goes, whoo, that thing is bad. I realize I'm pointing to you in the Zoom call. That's probably Yeah, what are you doing? (laughs) Um, The immune system says, ooh, that bacteria, I know it's bad. I'm going to get it. And then it sees the bacterial toxin, and it goes, I'm like getting tangled in my own microphone, and it goes, ooh, bacterial toxin. I know it's bad. I'm going to get it. And then where stuff gets squirrely is where the immune system goes, hmm, there's a thing over there that looks very, very similar to the bacterial toxin, which I know is a bad thing. And that kind of looks the same. I'd better be super double ultra mega careful. I'd better make sure I protect her. I'm going to attack that thing too. And the thing that it decides to attack too is a part of your body, and that's the vinculin protein. And that's a protein on the nerves in your intestines that regulate the MMC. So when you no longer have those cells, migrating motor complex goes out the window, bada bing, bada boom, you get SIBO. And those are the cases where typically people will have food poisoning. They'll usually like recover from the food poisoning reasonably well. Maybe it, it threw them for a loop for a couple of days, but then they kind of come out of it. And then, you know, two, three, four months down the road, they start generating these antibodies and now they have bloating and symptoms that are kind of akin to SIBO and then eventually they get diagnosed with SIBO. So in my book, the more acute stuff, the anti-CDTB, where it's like you had food poisoning and then it just took you a really long time to recover and it really sucked and you had IBS from that day forward. Yeah. That's what I would call post-infectious IBS. Yeah. The people who like they recover and that new squirrely stuff starts to come up and they might not even connect it back to the food poisoning necessarily. I would call, personally, I would call that autoimmune SIBO or autoimmune mm-hmm. dysmotility. Yeah. And I think that that's an entirely different beast, but that's broadly what people are talking about when they talk about post-infectious IBS is that autoimmunity against the nerves in your intestines can set the stage for SIBO pretty darn well to a point where I think the numbers, if I remember correctly from the test, I think it's about a 90% correlation with a positive SIBO breath test if you have anti-vinculin antibodies that are positive per the lab range. Yeah. So I've even had cases where, you know, like one patient comes to mind and she has everything. She has like all of the SIBO root causes, checked, yeah. checked all of them off, every single one of them. And she had a hell of a food poisoning years ago, and she's got Crohn's and celiac disease. Like celiac disease so severe that if she gets glutenated, she has to go to the ER because she gets that sick. 
and just she's got so much going on. And for her, I was like, I'm kind of leery to do a SIBO breath test with you because I think because it's a provocative test, it might provoke symptoms and make you feel worse. And I don't know if I want to rock the boat that much. So let's do IBS smart. If it comes back positive, we could pretty much take it to the bank that you have SIBO. If it comes back negative, it doesn't get you off the hook for SIBO. But sometimes I'll use it almost like a screening tool before I do a SIBO breath test if I think that a patient really can't handle a SIBO breath test, or I might just decide to treat empirically. But the relevance, um, and let me know if you want to chime in. I feel like I, I don't... I don't want you to look back at this podcast and be like, I couldn't get a word in edgewise. Darn it, Nikki. No, you're fine. Keep rolling. Cool. Just like flail if you want to say something. Um, but yeah, the uh, or that, whatever that was, <laughs> completely. <laughs> For those of you not on YouTube, you missed out. Um, I would say, I, I think it's important for any healthcare professional or clinician to ask the question, will running this test inform clinical decision-making? Will it make me make a different decision than I otherwise would have decided? Like if it's, you know, if you look at it and you're like, well, you know, we can hypothesize the root cause, but there's nothing else we can do about it, then it's not going to be super useful. But what I've seen now, um, and some of this is coming from the company and Pimentel's research, is the current recommendation is if you have that anti-vincolin autoimmunity, if you have that, that autoimmune dysmotility, the current recommendation from that group is to stay on a prokinetic for a minimum of five years. And I'll tell you, I think it's just because we don't have longer studies. I think in another five years, they're going to be saying 10 years. And I think five years after that, they'll be saying 15. Um, But I do think that having something on board like a prokinetic, whether it's herbal or prescription, to stimulate and regulate motility is incredibly, incredibly important for those people. Now, I use prokinetics with all my SIBO patients and IBS patients regardless, but yeah. it takes the conversation from a, hey, we'll use this for like a few months, maybe a year, we'll see, to, no, man, this is going to be your new BFF. Yeah. So we need to make sure we find the right prokinetic for you because you're going to be on it for the long haul. And that's an important differentiating point in my book to know. If I'm going to tell somebody, hey, you're taking the supplement for five years or more, we want to make sure we have a good one on board and one that agrees with their system and actually seems to help. Um, so that's one of the biggest things for me is just knowing that. The yeah. other thing is it it opens the conversation to, okay, now you have autoimmunity. And we know that it's impacting part of your nervous system. So now we we really like, we go from hypothesizing to knowing. We need to do things that are cool for your immune system, like making sure you have vitamin D, making sure you're not eating foods that you're sensitive to, gluten being the biggie for a lot of autoimmune people, like making sure that you are taking care of your body, you know, sleeping right, whatever. Like those all become top priority when you know you have autoimmunity because then you don't want it to progress and get out of control on you or turn into something else. But also it opens the door for, well, let's make sure that your neurons are super happy too. Yeah. Um, let's, you know, make sure your blood sugar is super cool and make sure that we're doing things like lion's mane and the prokinetics and working on the nervous system side of it. And again, like that's stuff that we probably talk with all of our patients about that stuff to some degree, but it just, it really, I think, um, makes it more relevant and more important in the patient's eyes sometimes where now instead of Dr. Deneza hypothesizing that we need to worry about my damn blood sugar, now it's like, oh, 
oh no, my neurons are going to get PO'd if my blood sugar is wacko. So now I need to pay attention to it. Um, yeah. So th- those right. are a couple of my thoughts. Um, right. No, I think like um, when there's an autoimmunity component, there's a lot you can manipulate. Like I think sometimes when people hear autoimmunity, they get real freaked out. Like, oh, like this is permanent. Which again, in some ways, like what you're saying is helpful because it it makes them take the courses of action more seriously. Like, oh yeah, I really need to like pay attention to this. So in some Mm -hmm. ways it's good, but I also wouldn't want someone to think like you can't manipulate the immune system. doesn't mean that like that's... Oh, hardly. Yeah, it doesn't mean that that's something that like um, can't be manipulated and that you can't do things that help to tune the immune system in a positive, beneficial way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like definitely doing things that are, are productive to the microbiome as a whole within the gut, I, I think is going to be huge here. Um, yeah. I love the use of prokinetics as well. I think they can be very important in certain situations. I, I huge. had not heard the, the recommendation of the five years until you told me a couple weeks ago, which again, like. Um, is I think it's really valuable. It's a biggie. Again, yeah. like I've been a little bit like for the IBS smart test, like kind of on the fence with it. Cause like what you're saying, I don't, I didn't really necessarily see the, the clinical significance until we've kind of been talking yeah. about it. And now I'm like, oh yeah, like that makes sense to get a handle on, you know, how severe, uh, the situation is. And again, even to understand, you know, is the, is it, the just post-infectious IBS scenario Mm -hmm. that was going on with their food poisoning event, or was it more of this autoimmune situation that's going to need more long-term support and not something that you really want to, like, veer from uh, too quickly. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, like, again, like, I've been a little bit more on the fence about, like, I definitely see the, the smart test and take it into account when I've seen it, but I just haven't necessarily ordered it. So I'm glad, like, that we can talk and sort of compare notes because again, yeah. it's nice to learn from each other and get a sense of what you've seen with the the IBS smart test. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I try to be really mindful of people's budgets. I am not yeah. a fan of the, what I call the Mark Hyman approach to functional medicine. <laughs> I pick on him, but like, yeah. it's not just him to be clear. And Mark Hyman, if you're listening, I love you, don't get me wrong. But you know, it's, the functional medicine practices were like, every single person gets $5,000 worth of testing. Every person gets the same poop test. Every person gets a 24-hour hormone test. Every person gets a SIBO test. Every go- And it's like, you could do that. And don't get me wrong, like the nerd in me thinks that sounds really freaking fun to do, yeah. to get that kind of data collection on everybody. But I also work with normal people, not people who are like swimming in a pool of money like Scrooge McDuck. So... You know, it's like it's another two hundred dollar test. Would that test be better? You know, would a different test be more helpful, like an oat or a SIBO test, or could we use that two hundred dollars to get them some healthy food or whatever? So it is. It's it's a serious decision whether or not you want to spend two hundred bucks on on a done test for somebody. But I have seen it be very very useful. Um, something I think too that's important, particularly if there's any clinicians listening in. Uh, but also patients, if you've had a test like this done before, A, I would say, uh, and it's possible I'm sipping Kool-Aid here, and I'm just going to acknowledge that right off the bat. Uh, I would go going, going to Jonestown. 
Maybe. Or Johnstown. Um, is it Johnstown or Jonestown? Where I they sip the know. Kool-Aid? Oh, well. I don't know. Bad no. reference. Bad reference. Just forget I said anything. Let's That's erase okay. the last 15 it's only, seconds. It's only a matter of time before I make some ridiculous, like, you know, Sailor Moon reference or something that you, you Oh, my so god! I'm sure I'll do that. Oh, best show. Anyway, um, but I think, A, this is me potentially sipping Kool-Aid, but here's my mentality. Mm-hmm. I recommend IBS Smart. I don't necessarily recommend the other variations of the same test. So, for example, Cyrex Labs has a version of this. They're a little bit ambiguous with what they're testing for exactly. Like, they call it something else. Uh, But Cyrex has one. Vibrant America has one. Um, There's one called IBS Check. And I don't know if they still do it, but Quest came out with their own a while ago called IBS Detex or Detox, I forget. Um, so there are several variations of a very similar test. But my initial mentality was when I learned of the new company, that's the one that Dr. Pimentel is associated with and has backed. And he does webinars for them and, and has helped develop that test. And he's the guy. <laughs> like, so there's a little bit of a call to authority, logical fallacy going on here. But truthfully, in my brain, I'm like, you know... I kind of like the guy who's doing literally all of the research on post-infectious IBS, practically, um, I want to align with the lab that aligns with him. So there was a bit of that. And also my understanding from webinars and such from him is that this is like they've improved on the test with with different leases. So like the version, I think it's IBS check was the one with Commonwealth. And I used that initially too. Um, That test maybe is a little bit less accurate or it might be a slightly different detection method. So now this is like the most current best version of the test as far as I can tell. Now that being said, one really important thing to realize when you're interpreting these tests, at least with IBS Smart, they have intentionally, uh, I don't say they messed with it. They set the bar very, very high. And for what they're trying to do and what they're trying to make the test into, I can understand why they did this, but I think it's important for CBOers to understand and IBS people to understand. The way that the dream for this lab, I think, and for any lab, you know you've made it big and you're you're like legit if insurance companies are willing to pay for your test and if conventional medical doctors are willing to order your test. And conventional medical doctors are more willing to order your test if it's covered by insurance, right? So they're trying to get it, this test into the hands of GI doctors, maybe primary care, certainly the integrated medicine community, like they wouldn't balk at that. But the real big time is if they can get the gazillions of GI doctors across America slash the world to order this test. And to do that, they need to have it covered by insurance for the most part. What they are pitching this as is a cost-saving measurement of, okay, hey, you have a patient with IBS, but they don't know they have IBS. You know, you could diagnose it based on the Rome criteria, but that has its pros and cons. And you send them out and you do a colonoscopy and endoscopy. You test them for celiac disease. You do, you know, you test them for Crohn's and colitis. And IBS has typically been a diagnosis of exclusion. And, you know, you're like, ah, is it IBS? Well, let's rule out everything else. And that if everything else comes back negative, we land at IBS, right? Well, that's very costly. And it takes a lot of time and energy. How, how many thousands of dollars would it cost to do an endoscopy, a colonoscopy, a celiac test? And the hope is, well, gosh, golly gee, 
if we had one blood test where we could definitively say, yes, you have IBS, or no, you do not, and that's what they're trying to do with this test. I think it's a little bit, I'm not going to comment on it, because this is a subset of SIBO and a subset of IBS, so I don't think it's entirely inclusive. You could still have IBS and have this come back negative, but that's what they're trying to kind of uh, sell it as to the insurance companies is, well, hey, you could have a patient billing a colonoscopy, an endoscopy, a celiac test, a biopsy, or whatever, all of these tests through insurance, and you have to pay for this, and it's like gazillions of dollars. Or you could cover our little 200 and whatever dollar test, and it's a cost-saving measurement for the insurance. And I'm not opposed to that. I think it's, it's wonderful to do that. But in doing that, they set the bar really high because when they've done their studies, they basically want to set the sensitivity and the specificity to a point where the specificity is so high that not a single person with IBD will get a positive diagnosis using this test. But it also means that their sensitivity is lower than it could be. And they are going to miss out on some people who genuinely have this type of autoimmunity if you're purely going on their lab reference ranges. So like with IBS Smart for anti-vinculin, it's 1.60. I've had patients come back where they're at like 1.51. I had one person, it was 1.59. And the lab didn't flag it as high. And thankfully, I knew this. And I told her, uh, girl, this is positive. <laughs> like for our purposes, yeah, it's positive. Because I just want to know if our hypothesis was correct and like if you need the prokinetics for long term. So I told her, I know it says it's not positive here on paper, but the sensitivity is very low. The specificity is very high. This is not, they're not truly using this test and building it up to be a marker for autoimmune dysmotility and SIBO. They're building it up to be a replacement for all of the rigmarole and all of the expense of diagnosing IBS so that you can cut to the chase and diagnose people more quickly and not have to send as many people for colonoscopies, endoscopies, and whatever else. So that's just important to know. If you come back and you're like, I mean, I don't know exactly what it would end up being, but if you're above like 1.3 on IBS Smart, I would consider that positive in the sense of understanding this is a root cause for you. Um, Yeah. It's, you know... I think that that's important to differentiate. And also, per Dr. Pimentel's research, it does seem like we can get a sense for how bad or how progressed this is based on the anti-vinculin antibodies. They have said that patients with anti-vinculin above 3.0 are much tougher to treat. And there's an asterisk in that statement, but they're tougher to treat, and it tends to be more of like a long haul treating them. Now, here's the thing, though, is like, this is all, you know, it's conventional medicine, so Dr. Pimentel and his, his clan, they're brilliant, but they're not doing all of the integrated medicine kind of stuff that we are probably. So, you know, I think that if, um, I think we could take away that if your anti-vinculant is particularly high, that probably does mean that you have a more severe case and it's going to take more legwork. It doesn't mean you're doomed. It's not like, oh, you're... Your anti-vinculant is 3.2, you're hosed, you're never going to get rid of SIBO. But it does mean that you might have to be extra, extra diligent about getting all of your ducks in a row. And that has come from the horse's mouth, so to speak, that Dr. Pimentel has has seen that. Um, And then as the anti-vinculant antibodies come down, symptoms do resolve or it goes into remission per 
per their group at least. So um, I think that goes back to when you have this test come back positive, we know without a shadow of a doubt now that we need to do all of the stuff that functional medicine has been talking about for years, that we need to make sure your immune system is super happy schmappy, that you don't have any other infections, that you don't have any dysbiosis, treat the SIBO, treat the motility, vagal work, stress, sleep, whatever it might be for you. But we need to get all of those ducks in a row so that your immune system is not chronically PO'd. And that's one of my biggest takeaways for doing this type of test. Yeah, and I I think that, like, um, uh, I like that you're sort of discussing this idea that, like, oh, there's a level of doom. And I think we were kind of talking, we were touching on that about, like, the autoimmune component. Um, There's so many levers you can pull on from an immune perspective. from an immune balancing standpoint. Oh, yeah. And, like, uh, I think even things like movement and circadian rhythms and, um, you know, stress management. And if it, and I think most people would f- feel better in general, even outside of the, the autoimmune SIBO standpoint, doing those things for digestion. But I think what you're saying is that there's almost like an, a next level of importance if the autoimmune component is there because the immune system is slightly more, I don't want to say compromised, but slightly more like in a precarious situation. I'd say to PO'd, wh- personally, okay. if that's me. <laughs> PO'd, pissed off. Um, and so there needs to be a little bit more like work there. And I, I totally agree. I mean, I think like in scenarios where like, I haven't necessarily run this test on certain people that I've noticed that have had pretty bad food poisoning events where you kind of know like there's definitely a a scenario here where they i'm like 95 percent sure that they have these antibodies yeah um and again like mainly my approach is how can we correct or make sure the immune system's kicking in a good way how can we balance the gut downstream too i think becomes very important Mm -hmm. Um, colon dysbiosis for sure yeah and i i mean that's the hard part in the SIBO realm because there's so much animosity towards bacteria in general that it's hard to make that switch then to like okay like we can't just kill things forever and expect the gut to be happy so like making that change of direction in at the right point I think can be really important and then if you've kind of been on herbals for a while and are still are like having a lot of problems and not getting any benefit from herbals because I've definitely seen people just like you know taking herbals for the sake of taking herbals Mm -hmm. because like you know oh yeah I think like SIBO is still here I'm still having symptoms but they're not getting any relief from them like I think a lot of times at that point it probably would serve you best to take a break and sort of work on a lot of these bases that you need to cover and then also there's probably large intestine stuff going on that's going to play a lot into how your immune system's responding and your ability to recover from a uh, an autoimmune version of SIBO with these anti-vinculin antibodies yeah yeah and I would say this too is that um I think like People, by the time they find me, at least, and it's probably the same for you, people (laughs) are so burnt out and frustrated and they feel like they have an impossible case because oftentimes their jackass doctors tell them that this is the toughest case of whatever I've seen ever. (laughs) And so they do end up feeling quite doomed and alone and frustrated. And they're like, I spent eight gazillion dollars on testing. 
And that's why I try to be really cognizant of with each test we run, am I running it for shits and giggles? Never. Or is it actually going to change a decision or part of the process? But I will say this too, is that as much as I talked up this test, don't rely on it 100% either. Like I said, there have been patients... A, because of just like the sensitivity and specificity thing and their range is, the bar is set intentionally high. But again, keep in mind, the test is only looking for anti-vinculin antibodies in the case of the autoimmunity piece. Right. There could be another protein that you have a similar autoimmunity to and we're just blissfully unaware that it exists and that there's autoimmunity. So give it another five years and maybe there will be another layer. So like that patient I mentioned who has literally every single root cause possible for SIBO in her history and very severe celiac disease, very bad Crohn's. You know, I told, I was like, it, I, I would be genuinely shocked if you did not have SIBO looking at all of this and like her symptoms match up and it's, everything makes sense for SIBO. And her food poisoning was very, very bad. She remembers that she was like, we were driving back from California to whatever and like had to stop on the side of the road and puke her brains out and like just horrible, oh, horrible food poisoning. And, you know, her husband was like, oh, I remember that. And her IBS smart came back negative and not even borderline. It was like 0.1 or 0.2. And I was like, huh, okay. Like yeah. she was a case where I thought for sure it would come back positive. But again, maybe there's some other autoimmune process. Maybe, maybe it's not even that. Maybe she has so many other SIBO root causes that we can tackle. But there right. are cases where, like, I'm sure it's going to be a thing, and then it looks like it's not a thing. But we still end up getting a lot of benefit out of prokinetics, or we still we still go down a similar path. So it's not like, you know, you have to take every piece of data with a little grain of salt and realize that you have to treat the person behind the test. And right. you still have to, like, use your noodle as a clinician. But I do think that for some people, it can offer a lot of clarity and a lot of insight and direction for us, again, in the sense of, like, you know, instead of casually taking a prokinetic for like six months, now it becomes, and no, you, you should like stock up on this because this is going to be your new favorite forever. Right. Um, yeah, for sure. And I think again, like, um, it, it, I think usually you can sort of wean down to a core supplement regime, whether it's just the yeah. prokinetic or like some other supportive thing that just seems to work well for you yeah. and you can sort of stick with it. And I think most people that I work with have been like down the extreme rabbit hole of taking like 30 supplements, which I, I would never ad- necessarily advise um, unless you just love doing that. Who knows? But most um, people don't. Exactly. I don't. <laughs> exactly. That's just overwhelming. So, I mean, I think like most people are, are unfortunately used to taking such a high number, like uh, they wouldn't bat an eye to taking a prokinetic forever if like, you know. Yeah. I or you said that it was necessary. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think that it's all about sort of figuring out long term what what that means from a from what you're saying with the IBS smart test. It's like, yeah, it could be really good at determining like what long term support is necessary for your particular case. It, it tells me that there's a strong, strong likelihood that you will need a prokinetic for, or that you will benefit from a prokinetic for quite some time. Yeah. That's the best way, you know, to say it. Um, and I think, too, I would say this also. The whole, you know, conversation with root causes, a lot of it goes back to 
Well, you need to treat the root cause or fix the root cause in order to fix whatever's going on. So with that sense, okay, say if food poisoning was your SIBO root cause, that you have none of the others, you have the anti-pinculin antibodies, and you're like, okay, now what? Because I can't yeah. go back in time and I can't wave my magic wand, go to, you know, Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles in downtown LA and tell you, don't eat that. Yeah. I'm from the future. <laughs> Goodbye. And then leave. Like, I can't do that. But how fun would that be if I could? Oh, my God. I would confuse a lot of people, but I would spare them of IBS for so long. So anyway. <laughs> that's, that's that'd like, be your that's superpower. A, oh. That'd be oh, your wait, superpower. That's a movie. That is a really corny movie waiting to happen. Can you imagine? Oh, it could be like when oh, we I meet. Should, when we meet I'll in person, Netflix. yeah. When we meet in person, you're my we husband. You know, does yes. does videos, so we could maybe do that a would fun. Be amazing, actually, do a fun yes. little skit. I always wanted to. Uh, this is something that I've always wanted to do. Is like for IBS Awareness Month. I think it's like April or something. Um, like literally go to downtown Cincinnati or something and like set up a table with like poop pictures and not real poop pictures but like the bristol stool tart or something okay, and like whatever floats your boat man you know how there's like always the the people on the corner screaming at stuff at you like i yeah. want to be that person with like a board that's like you know bristol stool chart like across my with a with a like a, a what a megaphone and be like you know yes. how's your poop looking is it looking Did you like poop this today? exactly just really hammering I... it at home for people i just can we get like friendship bracelets or friendship necklaces? We or something? should get like Just... a, a friendship bracelet, but like a poop emoji that's split <gasps> in half. Oh, I love that. Yes, I think uh, I've said numerous times that we are cosmic litter mates, and this was meant to be. But I, I love you so much more now. Um, you know, it's really funny. Literally, right before the pandemic, one of my plans for like wacky kind of business stuff was I was thinking. And I was I was actually right about to like order the thing. You know those um those board signs where it's like a a big stiff, you know, not cardboard, but like a sign and then there's like ropes that go over your shoulder. Yeah, that's what I was talking is, about. Bristol, yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking of making one of those and saying just like talk to me about poop or yeah. talk to me about <laughs> gut health. And that I was literally planning to go to downtown Chapel Hill and walk around on Franklin Street and just like drum up conversation with people and be like, what questions do you have about poop? Or like, what questions yeah. do you have about whatever? And I was inspired. There was a YouTube guy. He's an MD and he was doing something just like more broadly, like ask me something about health. Yeah. And it was so like quirky and fantastic. I was like, I could do that. I have zero shame. So it's so funny you mentioned that because that was literally my plan before the pandemic hit. And then I was like, well, nobody's going to come talk to me about poop because we're all <laughs> going to be like socially distanced. But I would still love to do that. I think that would be so fun. We New should idea. do that when when everything. That's how we'll yes. meet together. That together we will go we'll like plan a vacation and it'll be a business expense and we'll go and we'll like march up and down the street of whatever town we vacation in and we'll be like talk to us about poop we gotta Done go to deal. like a town that would be like really in what town would we have to pick that would be really interested in poop talk because i feel like some towns might not be Many. as like true um i feel like generally speaking the east coast is probably it or like california and the west coast would be fine with it too for sure um, for sure Asheville, North Carolina is very crunchy. So, okay, so they'd be uh, into Asheville, it. Yes, and Ithaca, New York, where I grew up, very crunchy. Very, like, 
hardcore hippie town. I think they would love the poop conversation. We could just march <laughs> up and down like the streets of downtown Ithaca and see the waterfalls and we could have a grand old time. I would vacation with you in Ithaca. Let's do it. I actually have like a, a poop costume, like a poop emoji costume. You do not. I do. I swear I'll wear it one day. For the podcast. <laughs> yeah, for the podcast. I was poop That'll for be Halloween last year. I, maybe That's... I'll just rewear it. This year. It may be my forever costume. I, I can see why. It probably should be, honestly. It's um, um it's timeless, you know. I, I'm falling in love with you as a friend just so much. More deeply every day, Amy. More deeply. Oh, my gosh. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah, I, I feel like that um, that kind of derailed me. Oh, there was one more point to the actual point of the podcast. Um, to get back on topic, unfortunately enough, and off of the idea that you have a poop emoji costume. But there is one more point that I would like to make about the whole SIBO root cause thing that we're talking about. So like I said, the reason why we got astray on that topic, although it was totally worth it, was that I can't go back in time and stop you from getting food poisoning. So we can't fix the root cause in the sense that like I can't prevent that from happening. But you can rehab your motility apparatus to the best of your ability and you can work on that in that sense. So, you know, are prokinetics going to undo the food poisoning? No. But they're going to try to rehab that system to the best of its ability and get it working again. And also what I would say is that people who have this, you know, either the anti-CDTB or the anti-vinculin autoimmunity are going to be more prone to food poisoning for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be more prone to getting quite sick from food poisoning if they get it. And this was like that patient where her anti-vincolin came back at 1.59. And I was like, this is positive, FYI. Um, she was a person where we talked about food poisoning a lot because she was like, man, I had food poisoning at the drop of a freaking hat. Like you could just undercook my egg by like a smidgen and my body is going to get food poisoning. Yeah. And, you know, I, I like lick a piece of undercooked meat. I got food poisoning. And she has to be really careful and, like, overcook her meat and overcook everything and make sure that she's super diligent. And she was like, meanwhile, like, my girlfriend or I think maybe her brother or something, she was like, meanwhile, other people, like, we'll go to the same restaurant, get the same food, and they won't get an issue from it, but I will. And I think that's important to know because then you can have a game plan in place for just in case that happens. So I'll share this with you. You could borrow the name of it. I call this the, oh, shit, I got food poisoning plan. And I type that in the chart notes for my patients as is. And I mentioned that on a YouTube video, I think, too. The, oh, shit, I got food poisoning plan is as follows. I tell patients, especially with this, but broadly speaking, too, if you feel the slightest twinge of food poisoning, if you're still on the fence and you're like, oh, is it a stomach virus or am I getting food poisoning? I don't care. The first twinge of food poisoning you get, you run to your cupboard and you take one or two of the following. Activated charcoal is my personal favorite. It's dirt cheap. Yeah. Also, kaopectate or something with bismuth like Pepto-Bismol would also potentially be helpful for this. If you could take both of them, that's awesome. If not, if you only have one, that's still better than nothing. But at the slightest twinge of any sort of food poisoning symptoms, you run to your cupboard and you get your ass on both of those. And what I've told people is because food poisoning is potentially going to send you down the crappy rabbit hole of SIBO squirreliness again, and you want to get this out of your system ASAP, you also want to take this stuff with you when you travel. 
So if you are away at a conference or a seminar or a vacation and you're spending even one night away from your home, take the charcoal and the kaopectate with you because there's nothing worse, I would assume, than getting food poisoning when you're at you know, San Diego or whatever for a conference and you're away from your stash at home and then getting food poisoning and realizing, oh, I have charcoal at home, but it's not here. What, what do I do? Yeah. And then you have to suffer through it. So I tell my patients, you always have those two things in your cupboard. When you leave home, you take them with you. And at the very first twinge, even if you're not sure if it's food poisoning yet, you take it and you take a fair whack of it because you want to start binding up that bacterial toxin as quickly as humanly possible. Yeah. And if you let the food poisoning progress to a point where you're like really, really sure it's food poisoning, it'll be hard to keep it down because you might be puking. So take it at the very first sign, the first twinge, and start taking those binders as much as you can just in case because that will potentially cause a flare-up of the inflammation, a flare-up of the autoimmunity, certainly dysbiosis, certainly just like it'll make you feel miserable when you have food poisoning. So I would rather try to get ahead of it as much as possible right at the first onset when you can. So that's that's the other piece of it. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I love um, charcoal. I think everyone should just have charcoal for sure in their medicine cabinet. Mm -hmm. Yep. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, I feel like that's most of the bases then. So if you have this this autoimmunity, you're not doomed. Uh, but it is good to be aware of it and make those decisions moving forward and just know that like these are the sorts of things that you might need to be cognizant of for a while uh, because your body's been dealing with quite a lot. But I don't think it's, you know, a doom and gloom scenario. Um, and, you know, the test is wonderful. It is a little bit imperfect in part just because like how they're trying to get coverage for it and how they've developed it. Um, but for those of us, you know, outside of a traditional GI practice where we are more integrative and we're looking at connecting the dots, um, I mean, it's, it's a very powerful test and I really can't recommend it enough. So yeah, um, happy to, to share that nugget of wisdom for what it's worth. Cool. No, I'm excited. We were able to deep dive into it. Yeah. Cool deal. All right, guys. Well, I think that is a wrap. I think the highlight for me was finding out that Amy has a poop costume, and I so look forward to the day that she records a podcast episode with me in that poop costume. Um, But if you are watching this on YouTube, if you could leave a comment in the box down below, like, subscribe, ring the bell, do whatever, but uh, that will help us grow this channel and keep bringing you awesome, awesome content and reach more listeners and help more people. And if you are listening on, you know, iTunes, Spotify, one of those audio-only bits, A, you missed out on Amy's sick dance moves, but... All the same, if you could leave us a five-star review, that will also help us get seen by more people and ultimately help more people who are in this stinky IBS sphere. So five-star review, please and thank you. And um, you can catch us on the interwebs elsewhere, but we will see you in the next episode. Toodaloo.